The International IVF Initiative is a worldwide non-profit education project for the assisted reproductive technologies community, sharing scientific and practical knowledge for embryologists, reproductive scientists and anyone working in the ART community. Each episode will share an insight into the world of IVF, along with profiles of legends within the world of ART, latest news and wisdom from our community. Welcome to another episode of the i3 podcast, where once again we go beyond the webinar to hear the discussions that followed two sessions recently shared within the i3 community. Now first up, you will hear the panel's thoughts after the session called Quality Inside, which discuss quality measures that are evident in IVF clinics across the globe and best practice highlighting new technologies to help embryologists to obtain a robust quality control system for lab equipment and environment. You'll hear Dr. Jean Popwell, Cassie Miller, Dr. Mina Alicani, Dr. Thomas Poole, Dr. Gerardo Mendizaba Ruiz, and Dr. Alison Campbell and Eniabel Colato, all giving their thoughts. Then you're going to hear the second Beyond the Webinar session following the session titled Mind the Generation Gap, which focused on showcasing the new demographic entering the ART workforce, the digital native Gen Z, and it looked at how with an ageing workforce, what will attract new talent to the profession and how best a labs work with different generations having different knowledge in terms of systems and processes. Have a listen. Hello again. Hello again. Hello again. Very good session. That was... Nice. Yeah. It, it was. It, you know, sometimes when you think about quality management and quality control, people shy away. It had everything. It was, it was really good. I thought it was very informative and a lot of good ideas. And uh, so people are not stuck with the same assumptions yeah. about quality control and how it should be done. Now, of course, don't forget, this is being recorded. So anything you say can be taken down and used <laughs> in evidence against you all. Great. Okay. Right. <laughs> Don't so forget, I was just saying, um, Gene, Gene, we're going to keep it in. When you left, you must have roared with laughter. That was fantastic. Um, was it Was it on the when description I, when you left? When, when I we left? finished, yeah, like when we finished, okay, you just had a beaming smile on your face. Um, was it something in the script that you, that you just found funny or something? No, I just was like glad I got through it. <laughs> Nothing crazy <laughs> happened. I lived in an apartment with so many people and literally I can't control like dogs walking by my door or the fire truck. I mean, yesterday there was a couple having a huge breakout outside my window in the middle of a meeting and I was horrified. And even with the windows closed, I was like, oh my God. So I was just like, thank you, thank you. <laughs> you made it through. That was so, great. But it was fun. It was also fun. So thank you for asking me to moderate along with Cassie. No, thank you. You'll yeah, um, be asked again. You were fantastic. Fantastic. You were fantastic. Good job. And no disruption. Although the fight, would have been, the fight would have been fun. I would have, I don't know. Would have been fun to see your face like. But um, I was surprised about the ransomware though. I mean, I can, you know, I can obviously understand that, um, that um, you know, you, you think, you know, do you give the money, you know, you know, and do you get the data back? And it's an extra, you know, trail for you. For, for the police to find them. But, you know, it works on trust, doesn't it? And and if they don't give the money back sometimes, you, you would have thought, you would have just said, okay, forget about it, wouldn't you? It's it's strange, that, uh, that balancing act, isn't it? Yeah, they're, uh, they're bad actors. <clears throat> so Yeah, yeah. yeah. They actually didn't, didn't do it to, to, they didn't really do it to, 
to do anything but take your money. So there's no reason for them to behave any other way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's no honor among thieves, as we say, is there? Yeah. You know, you had a you had a a cybersecurity session not terribly long ago, what, last spring? Yeah. Well, that guy shows up at my house a lot. So I, I try to stay <laughs> stay up to speed on, on this whole deal. I talked to him just the other day about that. So I think the numbers are still good. Yeah, excellent. Well, it was also interesting. You mentioned that like over the pandemic, they just spiked again because people were working from home. Okay. And, uh, you know, the worst culprits are, you know, the users. So, you know, with with bad passwords and and with all that goes on. Yeah. So it's there. But but like also, and, and being like Javada now, we're not the internet of things. Um, you know, there is potential hazard because, of course, this is like, literally low-hanging fruit you know all, all these connectors are going up um and there's different ways to hack i heard that there's a very famous story about i think it's it's a casino that got hacked and it got hacked through the through the aquarium that had like um like an internet of things thermometer but if it's got an internet connection they can get into that and then they can work their way with all the connections and i think they um they did a lot of harm didn't they with that yeah, there's always a risk, uh, you know, somebody who really knows what they're doing, they will be, you know, uh, maybe able to hack into the systems. Uh, that's the, I think that's one of the biggest concerns regarding the IoT technology and what is uh, what's the, the responsibility of not the broad popularity of this thing, especially in the medical field, right? Like nobody wants a leak of information on, on, on this field because it's, Mm. Very risky for everyone. So um, I guess uh, we will need to figure out better ways to keep things secure. And you know, like the big the big issue is that for these things to be broadly available, you need to use what is already there for protocols, communication protocols. But at the same time, that's the risk because it's something that uh, you know everybody knows these protocols, so they have the you know they can hack into them. So if you want it to be really secure, you need to have, you know, custom-made uh, protocols, and you know that will make yeah, not yeah. compatible the things with other things. So, I mean, this happened a lot. Like one of the biggest uh, success of Internet of Things in the houses. So you have now everybody have cameras in the houses that you can access from your cell phone. But now we have these people who hacked into the cameras and they can see what your and your family is doing. And of course, nobody wants that. So yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I think gonna... you just have like this continuous cycle of vulnerability. Like you have to, somebody's always going to be a step ahead. Then you have to put a patch in, and you have to cycle. Yeah. I think what happens is it's expensive to keep all the updates, and everybody has a different phone. So like for IT to maintain all of the different systems, mm. it's it's critical. Because like, uh, uh, because the main, you know, and there's, and there's billions and billions of these internet of things, and they're mainly in the house, you know, but, but by definition, you know, they're cheap and they're, you know, and they're mass produced. So, you know, and they are, you know, you know, the cameras, they can put the heating on, they can tell you how much food you've got in your fridge, they can even tell you like, like a recipe out of what you got in your fridge, or even order milk if you're getting low. So there's all this going on, but it's mainly to do with the house you know, the house appliances, but maybe you need an extra layer if it's anything to do with like medical, you know, maybe you need like a medical internet of things. So you need, you know, an extra layer of security that have to be produced in a certain way because 
certainly, you know, they, they have been very like, vulnerable in the past, these, these, these little devices. I wanted to add to that, you know, there are, there are actually certain ways to, to uh, prevent and, and, and help with some of these uh, secure vulnerabilities. So what happens for a lot of these systems, what you, what, what you can do in IT is create its own network that's separate from your entire organization's network. And let's say if you have sensors in the lab that just basically collect and send out data to a cloud, there's no need for them to talk with your uh, servers or with your applications, with your users directly on their network. You can have a separate network created just for that, completely isolated from your data, from the data center. Uh, and, and it's one of the ways to, to achieve that. Uh, you know, what happens also with, uh, uh, with, with alarms and, 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 in, and uh, instruments that, that measure data in a lab, uh, is that because a lot of times they can be qualified as non-HIPAA, you know, names. It's really, you know, a, a, a temperature measure that's being sent out. So, so it, it works very differently. Uh, you know, kind of makes it easy to to, uh, to basically ensure that all of your regulations uh, are met in, in, in the healthcare organization. Uh, but at the same time, you know, because you're able to eliminate it and, and it doesn't need access to, to other systems, there are, there are good ways of protecting it. Uh, and and uh, essentially, again, it's all about how you implement and if you pay attention and, and use all of these tools that you have to, to make sure things are secure. I agree with that. I mean, our IT department pretty much just locked everything down uh, to the point where I'll find a great tool, like all of the things I wrote down today from you guys, but they're going to look at how you, it's implemented. And like you say, everything has to go in a separate network just like what michael's just said it just everything has to be separate um this has become an issue with choosing witnessing platforms uh everything that needs to be integrated like we wanted to talk to our emr but then if anything has to go through the internet anything has to we just all have to have a separate sec a session or for a separate server basically set up a whole nother platform for pretty much everything we're integrating um and it's shocking, but it's true. It's like you have to lock it down. Um, they point out how vulnerable things are all the time to me. So um, we have a whole protocol for our network. Literally can't even install anything. Uh, cell phone, somebody mentioned that. Uh, we just got this new thing called the company portal. Used to be able just to, you know, get your new cell phone, put in your office email and teams and everything else and i was just happy uh no they've locked that down <laughs> so you now have to upload uh, my company portal and you have a password and it keeps all your documents from work separate from your personal documents on your cell phone so you know but i everybody i know who's been hacked has, has had to pay i don't know anybody who's gotten away with not paying and they can hack your house they can hack your car they can hack your lab they can hack your lab through ultrasound machines, which are hooked up to your EMR because they have to be, because you're scanning your patients and then putting the data directly into your EMR. So guess how that, you know, it's just so many ways. You literally have to think about every way in which something's integrated, you know, within your clinic and try to either put it on a different platform or lock it down. Yeah, there was a question which wasn't about security, but let's say in a world where everything's connected, and let's say you've got reflections or, or any kind of QC data which is connected to your patient outcome, that could be a tricky thing because if you get inspected, a lot of people, I think, don't want it to be connected. Now, that would really give you powerful evidence and some data if you could tell that by improved quality control, you could increase you know, the success. So, you know, 
we believe it helps, but there's no sort of like direct link. But if something touchwood goes wrong, then perhaps that leads the clinic open to uh, litigation. Have you got any thoughts on that? If it is connected to, you know, if QC data is connected to patient success? I think you have to be protective of that. Obviously, you would want to be transparent if you knew that there was something that you did that directly affected their outcome. But yeah, I certainly don't think you would want a patient to be able to open up their medical record and find the QC for everything that was checked that day. I, I don't think it would be relevant and I think it would be misinterpreted and I think it could be used against you. Literally just had that conversation because a lot of the great witnessing platforms out there, they provide you with so much data and then it's hooked to your EMR. So same thing, Cassie, like it's great. Okay, you're showing the fertilization check time, you're showing the ICSI time, but here in San Francisco, we have super savvy, I know more than Eugene as a PhD, I know exactly what time you you're supposed to have done my ICSI and you didn't do it exactly at, you know, four hours after this and you did it at five hours and why did you wait? And whether you did something wrong or not, I don't know how much data you need to go over to your EMR and then a patient is their chart. So if they ever print it off or request that data, it's all in there. Um, I agree. If you have a mistake or an error, you want that collected, but I don't know how much VQC needs to be in a patient charge. Yeah, I don't think that they should have access to it daily, again, because I don't think that they know how to interpret it. And it is discoverable. I think at some point, if you were in some kind of litigation, then whether it's in their EMR or not, they could ask for it. But I don't think for the layman, they should have access to it because I don't think that they would understand it. And, and like Jean said, I think everybody's an expert on Google. And so if lab ABC does them this time and we didn't, then somehow we're wrong and they're right because they didn't get the outcome they wanted. Well, you know, I, I think uh, it really is inevitable. I mean, the, when the data are there, they're there. It means that, as you said, Cassie, uh, they can be discovered. So as soon as you start collecting the data, that data becomes relevant to every single case that goes through your lab. There is no hiding, you know, the data for better or for worse. So I think, uh, for instance, you know, when the embryoscope collects the all the different parameters uh, of the instrument uh, during the culture period uh, for patients, that is associated with that patient. A report is, is actually generated internally and is available. If the patient asks for it, you're obliged to turn it over. You know, you can say that they, um, they don't have the uh, knowledge uh, base or experience to interpret the data and you'd be correct in saying that. On the other hand, once the data uh, are there, they're there. You know, you, you just simply have to accept that we live in a very, very different time now. And all of this information uh, can be, uh, and at some point will be made available to the patient. I mean, look at the tomorrow system. Um, patients can log in and into a portal, uh, theoretically right now, but uh, that's the intention. They can log in and look at their, uh, the temperature of the tank where their embryos are, you know? It, it's Chloe, inevitable. Yeah, Chloe has um, 
the AI software that I saw a presentation on, um, I guess fertility, I'm not sure. Yeah. And same thing. It's, they have, they actually built an app for the cell phone because they thought patients would love to peek in on their embryos. And I thought, I mean, PR wise and, you know, embryology wise, that's really cool. Like, oh, there's my eight cell growing in the embryo scope. But at the same time, I'm like, wow, that's, I guess the data exists and they should be able to see this data 24 hours a day, but it was interesting. I hadn't seen any other company do that where there's a direct link into the microscope that's incubating your embryos. Yeah, and that will happen more and more. You know, it's, uh, it's not just the marketing gimmick. Um, I think patients will want to know. Um, and uh, well, what can we say? It's now open and uh, much less opaque, uh, more transparent. Uh, and in some ways that's good, uh, in other ways not so good, uh, but it puts us in a position to have to understand our own systems and be able to explain uh, things to patients when they do ask. I mean, I think, I think if we have a, if we have a robust system, then that should be able to handle, you know, all these new, you know, data points, because as Mina said, I think that let's say the new generation of patients, if it's not the new generation of people anyway, they will ask, you know, for like the data loggers when a sample goes from A to B, you know, they are already asking for that. Okay. Now, maybe they don't understand them or maybe they do, but you know, the information is out there. They live in a world where they can get this information, where they can, you know, where they can track their Amazon parcels and, uh, you know, buy something yesterday, get it a very few hours after that. So, you know, it's all the way that these, these things are going and it's out there that, you know, the genie is out of the box because the data could be connected anyway, I think. Yes, I agree. Well, in the US, of course, we know that patients uh, now can at will request all of the medical records, right? So any information that, that, that you collect, the patient has right to the big vague with the number of information that we collect uh in a lot there's just so much and and then also if we're looking to sharing data for example capturing all of the uh, all of the uh, measurements for for incubator for example. and that data can be sensitive still even though it's if, if it's uh temperatures it's sensitive because if, if you know if someone can find out that your temperatures are always way above or below that that reflects poorly but, but what I wanted to say is that one of the challenges, one of actually the solutions for dealing with data that can be sensitive and, and present a problem is by actually anonymizing the data. So you, you can, you know, if software is set up uh, and systems are set up in a certain way where some data you know, will be linked to, to, to the lab and other data can be anonymous. And that way it's still going to be collected. It's not linked to your particular lab, but it can be useful for the general population to know whether an incubator, you know, specific brand is a good choice, or you know, it can be good to, good to know, uh, you know, uh, for for the company or for the lab if they're looking to get a specific model number. Uh, but you can you can certainly anonymize and, and create systems that that basically don't link the data that you're sharing with. I do think though, like for QC versus let's say an embryoscope that's continuously monitoring a, a patient's um, embryo journey. I don't feel like that's part of the medical record. The QC would not be part of the medical record. So if a patient were to request that, they wouldn't automatically get that. I think if you included it as part of the medical record, 
then obviously that makes it 100% more discoverable. I think if it's if it lives outside of that, then that if a lawyer were to come and say that we are requesting this information, then that would be included into it if they asked outside of asking for the patient's medical record. So, you know, I would just advise against putting it in the patient's medical record because then you make that information 100% easily available to them versus leaving it as a separate entity, a separate piece of your lab's record so that they have to specifically request that, that record versus a patient's medical record, which again, if, even if you write a note on the back of a patient's record that said the incubator today didn't look very good, it was 38.9 and it should be like, that would be discoverable because it, now it's actually living on that patient's medical record. So I would say, make sure that you maintain that distance for now and don't put any extra information in there that would make it, uh, you know, easily accessible to them, or again, provide them information that maybe they, they wouldn't be able to interpret because our patients are so, they vary so much in that bell curve. They don't understand that you are the 48 year old with a 78 year old husband versus the 24 year old with the 24 year old husband. Like they don't understand that curve. I would just throw that one out there. Don't make it available. If it, I mean, again, we live in a world where nothing is private. There's no anonymous donors. All of that is discoverable at some point, but just put some barriers up so that it's not, you know, a clean line straight to that information. Not that we're trying to hide anything. It's just sometimes too much information is, is detrimental. And not helpful. And I totally agree. It just, um, it's just kind of interesting that as you evaluate, like I say, new products that are coming out, like we were just all at ASRM and you start saying, okay, well, how much do you send to the EMR? And they're like, everything. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want everything. <laughs> I don't want every door opening of the incubator to go to someone's record. Like, I don't need that. Um, that's a little much. And so you just want to make sure you I'll add to that and say, just choose a product that is customizable for what your clinic or lab would like to go to the patient record versus keep on the witnessing or keep somewhere else on another platform. Some of them are very customizable that way. And some of them, that's their platform. So everything goes to EMR and it, it is what it is. So you're not interested in seeing my uh, 50 million measurement points report. <laughs> I don't know why a patient would need uh. to know every door opening, but... I mean, we need to, as quality management people, we need to know that, but I don't know if patient needs to know that happens. And we're doing it for the good. You know, this is why we, you know, we are recording this and monitoring this, you know, I mean, right. you know, we live in a world which obviously isn't perfect and we have machinery, you know, around us and, you know, we're doing our best to check that. So, um, you know, that's the whole point of the quality improvement. You're checking it and you're proving it. You're checking it and improving it. And that should be highlighted. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Again, Everyone did a great job. It was fantastic. Thank it was really you. good. And I think people are going to take a lot, you know, a lot home with them about this and yeah. um, also also online. So, again, thank you very much. See you in Sweat. Uh, see you in Sweat. See you in Sweat. See you in Sweat. Yes, definitely. Bye. 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 Now we're going to hear the panellists from the Mind the Generation Gap, which was hosted by veteran senior embryologist, lab manager and mentor, Dr. Kimball Pomeray and former embryologist and current educator, Huey Hun. The panellists included Savannah Palmer, Toyinoyo, Angela Reagan, and the presenters were Fran Farley, Radhika Kakaluvarapu and Chloe He. Do make sure you check out the show notes for this episode because there'll be links to the whole sessions that both panels are talking about. And also keep listening to the end so you can find out all the ways you can get in touch with us here at i3. 
How was it for you? I loved it. Honestly, I love. I I probably could have just talked to you all, each of the speakers for another couple hours. I have so many questions to ask you guys. So I thought it was great. It was a perfect Gen Z millennial uh, collaboration, um, and I think we all got a lot from it. I think a lot of attendees will will get a lot from this. Even from Angela's perspective, I see. I probably could have asked you, you know, ten more questions, Angela. <laughs> so. Well, here you are. You can. You can, of course. Yeah. And if there's any questions which which you didn't get to or, or sort of jump out of you, please do. I was amazed, really, how it didn't go down like the usual stereotypical sort of pathways. And and there was, of course, a lot of science there as well. So, you know, um, there was something for everyone. I, I loved it. What do you think? I enjoyed it. I got to tell Chloe that I really wanted to say more than I said just because I have a transgender son, but I didn't want to you know, steal too much time talking about that. But I thought that you're bringing up all of those yeah. questions and the obstacles to LGBTQ plus people was fantastic. And I hope people took note because yeah. you don't think about it until it involves you really. You know, you might think about it a little, but it doesn't hit home until it involves you. Yeah, it went well, I think. That was some some kick-ass talks like Radica. That was, that was, freaking lit oh thank you and i saw your slides in the rehearsal i was like god damn i need to step my game up <laughs> giles can i ask my controversial question now yes of course you can i did leave a very controversial question on uh fran's talk don't know if you're even in the position to answer it right now you seem to be walking through an airport but uh how how do we reconcile the fact that the creation of more humans has a significant carbon footprint with the fact that our sector basically exists to create more humans. Like a year, yeah. an annual emission is going to be like six six tons a year, like on average. And sure. multiply that by like however many millions of IVF cycles we've done. And that's that's quite a chonker. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing would say, don't do it, just stop doing IVF and then you won't contribute to emissions. But no one's really going to do that. We'll be out of jobs and I don't think the people who are struggling uh, will be happy with that. Um, so I think it's kind of just how can we limit it as much as we can, as best as we can. <laughs> well, I would say maybe one of them is going to save us. I like that. Yeah, I would agree. I'd say being uh, incorporating sustainable measures into labs and clinics is so important, especially since um, <laughs> the need for IVF is just increasing year by year. And with more people and the increasing age of starting a family it makes perfect sense to make our practices more sustainable Absolutely. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and we're like eating up like precious precious very rare like rare materials occasionally when we, when we actually do stuff so on the sustainability front that makes a lot of sense to like make things far more like sustainable and also just waste less because it makes yeah. sense economically so chloe i would like to ask you a very difficult question okay yeah so I'm going to ask you, have you seen the movie Soyant Green? No, I okay. haven't. So it's a time when the world becomes so unsustainable that people are basically given benefits to commit suicide, to off themselves. And yep. they are turned into food for the rest of the people. So what? to me, you know, our options, if we really want to limit the population, are either to quit growing, if we believe in that so strongly, maybe we should off ourselves. And I'm probably the oldest one here, so I should probably give up myself. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> no, but, doesn't come to that. 
I mean, honestly, though, like, I remember just going on, on my first week at uni, we do have, like, uh, I think it's the Population Matters group. Have you guys heard of that? No. So it's this international yeah. lobby group that's basically telling people to have less children and, like, um, and, like, I remember on my, like, first, first a couple of, like, days of uni, we were at the Freshers Fair and, like, they had their little stands telling all of the guys to get vasectomies. And... Mm -hmm. And like giving off lit giving out little merch for it as well. And I think that like while this is one way that we're looking at it, but like basically there's there's one thing of like deleting existing people and the other thing of just making the conscious decision not to have kids. And the question is whether or not like whether like there's obviously massive ethical implications of like our sector just whether we continue or whether we like stop they're, they're going to be massive ethical implications no matter what i i like your definition though and call it deleting someone as opposed to offing them like i said deleting preventing versus deletion yeah yeah but but you're right there are going to be big economic changes if that happens also you're going to yeah. support you're going to have less young people supporting these older people that you know are going to need all these resources to maintain their health and less people to do that. We've yeah. seen it in other countries. So it's a tough, tough question. Um, I remember there was a guy by the name of Paul Ehrlich in the 70s. Yes. I don't know if you remember him, Giles, but he had a book out, I think it was called Population Control. Mm -hmm. And he predicted all these terrible things by now. And do you know what? It didn't even come close to it. It doesn't mean that things haven't happened. We all know there have, but it didn't come close to it. So. Hopefully we can uh, get a handle on some of these things ourselves without deleting people. We did have like a green workshop at our own clinic, uh, which was rather entertaining because I essentially ended up like coming up with like, we, we, we obviously had some sensible ideas, but I think like the most sensible, ridiculous idea that came up with was offsetting each baby with carbon credits. A uh, quick back of the envelope calculation found £80,000 worth of carbon credits to offset the lifetime emissions. Oh. Yeah, the, the news from, from this morning was basically that the world population has now grown to 8 billion people and it has actually doubled since 1974. Um, so the rate we're expanding is... is Become very, very significant. Any other questions which people saw on the list and uh, and they didn't get a chance to answer? Is there anything that, there that jumped out? Yeah, of there was one question uh, from Chloe that I wanted to to from an audience. They asked, "Have you done any work with AI and the impact of the embryo development in media, in different medias, in different culture medias?" Yeah, I wish I had that data. Yeah, um, that's that's basically it. Like, I wish I had that data, but at the moment we've just got like. A, a chunky data set from like like three clinics and they all no i mean yeah. I, like you said i think you're taking a good first step i would love so my my background is in air quality from an environmental perspective air quality so i would like to see the, the impact of air quality of view like very defined vocs yeah um and and you run your ai program and see how the embryo makes changes based on different v common vocs in our industry so I'm, I'm actually doing, yeah, I'm actually doing work right now on the VOCs on, on mouse embryos, of course, but yeah. I'd like to see, I would love to be able to maybe collaborate with you to see how AI can identify, you know, spot like signals for like, okay, this embryo is growing, but it's not growing as well as it should because of potential of this one VOC, styrene or whatever. Yeah. You know, um, that's where I'd like to see the future, you know, you know, that you take it.
So. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe we should have like asked this on the thing because I could have done a shout out and asked people to actually don't to 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 reach out if they do have the data. And... <laughs> oh, like I said, it's a podcast. I mean, we can still we can still plug the podcast to get yeah, people. Uh, uh, Chloe dot he dot twenty one at ucl dot ac dot uk. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Oh, I have a Gen Z question that came up that I, I didn't want to open up the can of worms. Maybe it's because I was prejudiced against it. But it's a, there was a question that said something to the effect of, do you find that all the old embryologists can't work Excel? I see that. <laughs> and I, I consider myself an expert. I can probably do more with Excel than probably anyone, you know, that isn't an Excel specialist. So I see a lot of people my age that we've had to become, you know, give me something else that's a newer software. And I think we'd fail in that. But Excel, we better know Excel and by now. Yeah. Right, Giles? Do you know Excel really well? No, I don't. And I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm amazed. I'm amazed to see. But really, but really, Excel is like a legacy thing. There's so many more, um, you know, you know, parts of software out there. But I'm just amazed at how, you know, inept I am but that's again horses for courses so you know I know certain things okay and you know and the new generation are here to teach us you know and uh, thank god does anyone here use visual basic or know what it is yep but that's okay. just because I'm from oh, a computer course, science background of course you would Chloe <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know I don't know that there are that many although I do know there are some people my age that they I just had an embryologist tell me that he couldn't give me his outcome data because he really doesn't know how to work with Excel very much. So maybe I'm the exception. Have you guys run across people that be, there's a generational gap between what software they can use? Yes. I, yeah. yeah. I definitely, uh, when I, te I teach at a community college uh, for nursing students primarily, and I see a, a huge generation, anywhere from 18 to like 40 year old getting to nursing, and there's definitely a generational gap. Um, I don't have to t tell my, younger students how to use you know um excel or word document or anything like that as much as my older students so there's definitely not everyone of course you know i'm generalizing of course but in general there's definitely something about that so available there with technology well, I think it's just about helping everyone to be honest like let's say i knew how to do something better and i would bring it up and i'll be like oh you know you can use this and this function and then it brings everything together and then you just show the other folks and like wow yeah. what is this it's like actually, revolutionary yeah. no totally you're absolutely right it's about helping each other so i actually had uh, my one of my nursing students she was very good computers right a technology and she actually showed an older nurse that was more experienced clinically but not experienced technology wise and so they they joined up, you know, they partnered and they became a great team because of that reason. So you're absolutely right. I think that's a great way to put it. To what do you think about Angela? I see you nodding your head up and down. Yeah, yeah. I, I think from a from an employer point of view, you know, we focus on how can we make our employees' life easier and reduce duplication of effort. So we we have lots of tools. So we're we're a big organization, lots of different sites, lots of lots of embryologists, doctors, nurses. So we, we really focus on user experience. So what's the interface that helps them? You know, we've got a huge database, huge amount of data. Um, and uh, we, we use things like Power BI that are really easy for users to cut and slice data, displays it visually and saves time ultimately. But I, I guess it's different for an organization like ours that has that resource to do it. And 
that's different, isn't it, from people that actually have to do the work themselves? Yeah, I think as I share fair point as well, you can work with old databases that the older generation know, but it's not them not understanding technology, it's the older database that's inefficient and doing double work. Whereas if we have a newer um, database that's incorporated into our work, then it will be more efficient, but maybe it wouldn't be understood by an old generation because they're still using the old database or the old system. So that's a good point. Yeah, we we, we have uh, we have the the uh, the interfaces like Power BI, and then we have people that will double check it using Excel just to just to validate. Uh, um, <laughs> don't trust it. <laughs> like, I don't fully trust you just yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Giles sent me some uh, videos to watch. I think it was I think it was you, Giles. Having to do with Gen Z. It I might know. have been. It might have been me. Of course it was. Yeah. <laughs> and Huey, Huey watched it was, them also. I watched them all. I took and, notes on them. <laughs> yeah, they were YouTube videos, and most of them concentrated on Gen Zs as people that avoid confrontation, but they see things as black and white. So they they said, and I, I don't like these sorts of uh, generalizations about any group, but they said that Gen Zs in, in general they want a certain thing in their job and if they don't get it they don't talk to you about it they don't confront you about it they say ah i quit and they look for some a job somewhere else then yeah i think as an employer you have to ask the questions you know we 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 do surveys we we listen to them um give them lots of opportunity to, to say because you know if they don't tell us they're telling everyone on social media uh about it all you know so um yeah, I think it's just staying in touch. It's, and it's hard. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying we're good at it. Um, but that's uh, the way well, no, that's it. what I that's the way you have to combat it, I think, is you have to communicate, you know, throughout this and not assume that they like their job. You yeah. know, find out why. But I think the other thing that I don't like about this is they attribute it to Gen Z's, but it may be where we are in embryology. High demand for embryologists, low supply. Yeah. So people pop around more. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say, because apparently the embryologists are aging out, um, I'd like to ask everyone, where are we going to find more embryologists? We had a we had a sort of like a, a poll recently and people just, you know, just like fell into embryology. You know, they heard about it from someone next door or they saw it. You know, it's very difficult and people just stumble on it as opposed to being recruited. Um, has anyone got any thoughts on that? 100%. Sorry, um, Huey. So it's just, yeah, okay. I'd say that it's not, it's not a, a career that is advertised. I'd say you find out of it from someone who knows someone or you read into it. Um, it's not like, you know, when you're in school and you're doing your hires or your leaving search and you're told, oh, you can be a doctor, a lawyer, a nurse, like when you say, oh, I'm an embryologist, they're like, sorry, what? What is that? Like, no one knows what it is. So I feel like the information needs to be out there. I feel like at job fairs or career days or like letting the, the generation in high school, like letting them know this is a career to go into. You know, like it, if you do science, you can be, you know, go into blood, you can go into virology, you can go into all different sectors. Like a scientist is not just a generalized job. Right? Yeah. I feel like, it is like people believe it's just oh a scientist is a scientist i feel like it needs to be pushed out there that this is what the career is and this is how you can get into it yeah 
So that's awesome, Tony. I, I 100% agree with you. Um, and Giles, I think it's not about recruiting. I thought it was about recruiting too. And I went to a meeting, a local uh, fertility meeting last week, uh, two of my colleagues uh, brought out. It was the first one, it was a small little lecture. And so I met like from three or four labs in the local area. I met all these young Gen Z millennial embryologists there, andrologists, endocrinologists, and they're anxious to get to embryology. So I think they're out there because embryology is such a great field. We all got it for a certain reason, right? It's clinical, it's research, it's patients. It's all these things that, that most industries don't have. So it's great. But I think I want to ask all of you, all the people here, Toy and Savannah and everyone, um, Radika and Chloe, like, how can we, how can Ange, someone like Angela and, and Kimball and directors, how can we help you guys, or you guys and your friends, your, your friends, like, get into the field more. So, you know, we read in that, that talk that uh, Giles sent us, you know, saying how, you know, life, work, balance, and all that stuff, but how do you guys individually? I'm not an embryologist, but like having had a couple of my master's students go on to become, like go into the field in one way or, or another, I think that like, it might also be like a problem of where you are and the local policies, because in certain places there are like surpluses of embryologists. Um, I believe Spain is one example of that. Yeah. And it's essentially um, a matter of like, you've got supply and demand, obviously, on Angela's problem, on Angela's like domain, where you've got this demand for like embryologists and the supply. But at the same time, when the only two ways that you can get in is, you know, a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy at a private clinic, or um, you are one of the lucky 10 who end up on the STP. Uh, I think that like the entire system needs reform. Like back in the day, yes, you can say that. Cool. Um, I ended up in embryology through bacteriology, which is like an actual pathway that I know. But that's because like IVF just didn't exist like 50 years ago. And like the 50 year olds who are in the field now or like were, were like literally, well, Bob Edwards was doing his thing and like they were pooping their diapers and then by the time they like left college it was maybe just like something maybe we'd just done like a couple thousand cycles by then and it only really picked up like in the 80s in the 90s right i'm, I'm not fully someone someone yeah. correct me if my history yeah, of IVF right. is right. wrong yeah so it's like it's a very like it is one of i think that gen z or like maybe the late uh, late millennials are possibly the first generation where this field is actually a established field rather than like a weird thing and like the pathways into it need to be fixed because you've you've got two things in the uk i don't know about the us but like in china for example one of my students she she qualified as an embryologist in china couldn't come to the uk because like obviously we don't accept those qualifications um but like she's had a ridiculous amount of lag experience and she got in from doing a medical degree and then specializing and then specializing so and like mm -hmm. after two years and it wasn't like a specific like training course or anything or like an stp where you have to do a master's so yeah. i think there's a lot of gatekeeping for something that maybe and I, I i can't pontificate on this but maybe like it doesn't need that much gatekeeping or like maybe you can expand the number of places yeah, I, I, can, I can add to that, Chloe, actually, if um, if that's okay with everyone else. So um, I, I think the STP, the introduction of the STP several years ago was really problematic because um, there wasn't enough places created and not enough places funded. But actually, in care fertility, the academic year that's just started, we've taken on nine STPs that are all fully funded by the H. 
AE. So the system is gaining a lot of momentum, which is really, really good. I think the HEE are recognizing this is a sector that needs to be invested in to create these posts because it's going to be, you know, the pipeline of talent just isn't isn't there. So we, we went through this massive um, contraction of new trainees in the UK, but actually I think it is earning up now, which is good news. But yeah, it's 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 a narrow way in the STP program. Um, and that's the UK. I mean, that's a UK system, which is incredibly difficult to get on these pathways. And as yeah. and as Chloe said, though, that in, in Spain, there is a there is um, um, a, a lot of embryologists because they're they're taught, they're sort of um, immersed in the idea that they can do that. And it is a fantastic job. And I think, you know, we know we can travel. Um, um, there's vast opportunities there. In Spain, especially, though, you're sort of like hothouse into knowing that you can do that job. So I think the awareness needs to be there. Whether we have to have like a TV series about embryologists as opposed to midwives, maybe that will get people sort of more, more in line with that. Because when you have something on TV, everyone thinks, oh, it's a fantastic profession. I have to do that, you know. I think you're right. TV would be interesting with embryologists. Yeah. Think about the ethical decisions embryologists make every day. Guarding embryo, freezing embryo, which embryo, weighing sperm, right? <laughs> like all these yeah. things. So it's amazing what um, we're asked embryologists to make these decisions on. Like, for example, so. I, I come from a Nigerian background. And when I went and told my parents, I want to become an embryologist, they were like, what? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> and my family still don't know what embryologist is. So. They were like, it's not a lawyer. It's not an engineer. It's not a doctor. What do you want to go and do that for? And it's still kind of, you know, Nigeria is having fertility clinics popping up, but it is still kind of seen as like a taboo to be infertile and like, you know, it's still kind of like a, a weird topic and a place to work on. So I feel like as well, trying to get that stigma away and a lot of African countries that you can have a baby naturally and you're looking for help medically is odd. I feel like that needs to be taken away and you should treat people who are infertile with someone who's going to go get treated for diabetes or for coronary heart disease or anything like that it is a medical condition that needs, it is deemed a disease according to the WHO. So I feel like once that stigma is taken away and awareness is brought up, I feel like there will be more people in the in our generation wanting to go into this field yeah i've got some experience actually working in like computer science outreach which is quite orthogonal to biology but we were looking at why are there so few women in like computer science and technology which is like not surprising because where i went to do my first degree i think that women were outnumbered by men seven to one and that was imperial um huh? and effectively uh what we find is like yeah it's it's very much like a matter of perception because if you look at the uk like very few girls want to go into computing whereas if you look at for example romania or eastern europe which is like barely like four hours flight away you've you've got like the totally different picture and it's because like in those places being in like being a computer scientist is up there with being a lawyer or a doctor it's like it's i think that it's very much like a perception thing because um and and I think it's also very much something with embryology, as it, like similar learnings can be made about embryology. It's like we need to look at the societal perceptions or lack thereof. Yeah, I agree. I guess it goes hand in hand by society and, and how it's, it's perceived in the particular societies and interact within it, as well as opportunities 
then once it gets reached out to people who are interested in embryology, where are the opportunities? And they differ in every other country. So they go hand in hand. I want to just thank you once more for a great webinar, for your time and for your presentations and your thoughts. I, I hope you've enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, well, it was great. Well, yeah. Okay, well, I should say goodbye then, okay? Until we meet again. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Be sure to visit com, where you can watch our back catalogue of webinars. Plus, you can sign up for future ones, download our electronic membership card, and find all our social media so we can stay in touch.